Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group Teleform conference call as today, July 21st, 2020, we discuss police unions, practically speaking. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Also, this call is being recorded for use as a podcast in the future and will likely be transcribed. We're going to get opening remarks from each of our two guests today for about five to seven minutes, perhaps as long as 10 minutes uh, from each, and then some back and forth between our guests. But as always, we'll be looking for audience questions, so please have those in mind for when we get to that portion of the program. We're very pleased to welcome two guests today. Larry H. James is the managing partner at Crab Brown and James, and Professor Daniel DeSalvo is a professor and chair of political science at City College of New York. He's going to begin first. Professor Daniel DeSalvo, the floor is yours. Thank you. And I just offer my quick thanks to the Federalist Society for having me uh, on this call. I'm, I'm honored to, to be included. And I'd also like to thank uh, Larry James for, for agreeing to discuss this important topic with me. So, of course, as we all know, George Floyd's death in Minneapolis and the ensuing protests and urban riots have brought, brought police departments under enormous scrutiny and widespread hostility. Liberals and conservatives today, in a rare moment of, one could say, bipartisanship, have alike identified police unions as a barrier to salutary reform. They aren't wrong. Union contracts are one reason why police departments are so hard to change. The current reform debate hinges on the notion that reducing job protections for police officers from qualified immunity to state labor laws to union contractual provisions will allow police chiefs to dismiss bad cops and cause those who remain on the beat to be more circumspect and less likely to use excessive force. The hope is that police violence against citizens will fall and community trust in police will rise. Police unions, on the other hand, influence the structure and operations of police departments from the bottom up through collective bargaining and from the top down through political activity. The problem is that unionization and collective bargaining have made it extremely difficult to meet, bring about meaningful reform of police departments. Pay and benefits are not the subject of today's controversy. Rather, it's the rules inscribed in collective bargaining contracts that are negotiated under the rubric of conditions of employment and establish disciplinary grievance and arbitration procedures for officers accused of misconduct. The serious concern is that excessive job protections allow some officers, a small minority in many cases, to act with impunity and thus poison police-community relations. Although an understudied topic, the existing scholarly literature on the impact of police unions is nearly unanimous in finding that police unions have negative effects on organizational modernization, accountability, officer use of force, and police-community relations. For instance, a 2006 Bureau of Justice Statistics report found that officers in unionized police forces are more likely to be subjects 
of an excessive force complaint, but are more likely to beat the allegations in disciplinary hearings. In a 2018 paper, scholars at the University of Chicago Law School found that in Florida, violent misconduct among sheriff's officers increased about 40% after the state Supreme Court ruling allowed the officers to unionize. And in one recent paper, still not peer-reviewed, a group of economists found that after officers gained access to collective bargaining rights, there was a substantial increase in killing of civilians. Contractual provisions and state statutes that deal with officer discipline and misconduct come in three forms. The first details the steps required to investigate an officer accused of misconduct, sometimes specifying the way the complaint can eat must be formally lodged. Such provisions stipulate when and where an officer can be interviewed, by whom and with who present. Many contracts contain rights to appeal, uh, rights to notice of charges, legal representation, a hearing, and a right to appeal, among others. Second, labor contracts allow or even require expunging of officers' past disciplinary records or accusations of misconduct. For instance, my home state of New York, until very recently, uh, a provision in state law called 50A shielded officers' records from the public. In Cleveland, the collective bargaining agreement required that disciplinary records be deleted every two years. Police chiefs cannot effectively manage their workforce if disciplinary records are regularly destroyed. Without records, a new police chief has little idea who they're dealing with. And the lack of records means that chiefs often don't know who they're hiring when job seekers come from other police departments. Third, grievance and arbitration rules lay down how an individual officer or their union representative can challenge an adverse personnel action by a superior, such as reassignment, transfer, uh, suspension, or firing. The use of arbitration itself can limit police accountability. Arbitrators have a strong incentive to be police-friendly. If they discipline too many officers, they will not be selected in future arbitration cases. Arbitrators are empowered uh, to order the reinstatement and back pay for officers found guilty of misconduct. A 2017 Washington Post investigation found that in Washington, D.C., 45% of officers fired for misconduct from 2006 to 2017 were rehired on appeal. In Philadelphia, the share is 62%. In San Antonio, it's 70%. Other contractual provisions can also constrain police management. Union contracts usually require that officers be assigned duties based on seniority. Consequently, a police chief lacks the discretion to assign particular officers to particular areas of their city or town. Instead, what typically happens is the least experienced officers must patrol the most difficult neighborhoods during the times of day when most crimes are committed. To be sure, many of the protections demanded by police unions reflect the unique challenges of policing. Because of the nature of their work, law enforcement officers tend to have adversarial relationships with the citizens and communities they serve. False or exaggerated complaints are inevitable, and it is understandable that labor representatives want to protect their members against these threats. However, collective bargaining in the public safety sector strips government executives of the tools they need to supervise and manage their workforces effectively. Police chiefs struggle to weed out poor performers, and a few bad actors can undermine an entire organizational culture. Police are among the institutions of government with which Americans most frequently engage. Police protect our most vulnerable citizens and allow communities to thrive. There are thousands of heroic and dedicated police officers 
but unionization and collective bargaining have enmeshed this crucial government function in red tape that too often protects the inept and abusive. I'll turn it over to Larry um, and for his, for his perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the society for having me. Um, my name is Larry James. Let me give you a little bit of background. I served as safety director over police and fire for Columbus, Ohio uh, for three years. My entire life has been, uh, after law school, involved with various aspects of police and public sector uh, labor issues. I've prosecuted police officers for internal affairs. I've defended police officers. I've administrated police officers. I've terminated um, police officers. I've, in another life, I was also general counsel for the local NAACP, and I'm currently uh, general counsel for the Columbus Urban League. I think there are a lot of uh, misnomers, and let me start with the easy, easiest ones I think I can dispel. You know, people say, you know, qualified immunity and what that means. Qualified immunity does not mean that police officers cannot be terminated. It does not mean police officers cannot be disciplined. It doesn't mean uh, police officers cannot be criminally charged. The sole purpose of qualified immunity is to give immunity to public officials when they've acted in good faith and, and made a bad uh, decision in civil litigation. So that issue is about money. I don't know how we got sideways on that. On the arbitration side of it, when you look at arbitration, what you come to understand is any good labor lawyer in an arbitration proceeding, particularly in the public sector, does not take bad cases to arbitration. So the disproportionate numbers you see, and I use Will Agenson, who's um, out of Seattle area, who's, if you follow Will in his uh, journey, uh, he says, you know, in the 3,000 cases that I've had on various disciplinary uh, matters, I've taken seven to arbitration. The point is that probably less than 10% of those cases that we see end up in to binding arbitration. If you did a search of the decisions from the arbitrators, what they would say to you is that the reason those cases get reversed or officers get reinstated, management has failed to present that compelling case or there's a disparity in the discipline and discrimination in the discipline. And I'll tell you a personal story as safety director when I started out, uh, I, happened, I happened to be African-American. Uh, the first three officers that the uh, upper management brought to me to termination were three black officers. And they were officers who had been very active in uh, police officers for equal rights. I, I reversed those terminations. So I said to the rank and file and everyone, if you're gonna get a bad cop, you're gonna get him or her the right way. So if management does its job, it's consistent, it's fair uh, and impartial, I think you find those charges sustained. The last thing police officers want to do is work with a bad cop. And the last thing a good lawyer in this area wants to do is defend a bad cop. But when that case comes to that lawyer and you're looking at the disparity of treatment and said, why did this officer get 10 days and you wanna terminate those officers? So the hand is forced. 
collective bargaining uh, and arbitration, I mean, let's stay with arbitration, you're looking at 60% of the American workforce in the private sector that that mandates arbitration clauses. So the private sector, the public sector, anyone in that area decides that arbitration is better. Why is that? You're looking at 261 days to 361 days on the average of adjudicating and finalizing a matter that goes to arbitration. Uh, the lawyers who are in litigation in state or federal court understands that that process takes probably two years to four years and probably 10, down, 10 times the cost. The other thing that the labor movement, I think, um, uh, at least during the early parts that uh, it came into being, it did a couple things. It enhanced the middle class, uh, government and the public uh, workforce. On the diversity side, we saw that th those areas uh, were just good for bringing people into the, uh, uh, the middle class, and I think that's the other real benefit of collective bargaining that we have lost. As I've been general counsel for the National Fraternal Order of Police since 2001, and it doesn't matter whether I'm talking to the Federalist Society, I'm talking to a room of uh, police officers, or I'm talking to the black community. My message has always been the same. And I think once they understand what the role of arbitration is and its effect and what qualified immunity is and what co collective bargaining is, they turn back to management because unions don't hire, they don't fire, they don't discipline, they don't promote, they don't train. One of the questions I got on a Zoom call last week uh, from school board members, they were talking about resource officers and they were talking about the skills that they wanted to see in those school, school resource officers that they had contracted with the police department to provide police officers. I said, why are you asking me that question? That is your decision to make. You are management. You set the criteria. You determine what the admission level is, whether, whether it's education or otherwise. So with that, I'll stop. Very good. Thanks to both of you. Let's open the floor right away to questions. Let's turn to our audience for our first question of the day. Hi, this is Pepper Crutcher. I'm on the uh, Labor Employment Practice Group Executive Committee. And I'm, I'd like uh, the opinion of both speakers on this question. Uh, what would be the consequences, in your view, of um, by law requiring that all disciplinary cases based on excessive force be resolved by jury trial rather than by arbitration? Uh, this is Larry James. You would never get anything done. Uh, this is Dan DeSalvo. Um, I, I tend to concur with Larry. I think a jury trial um, in all of such cases would probably be uh, a very slow and difficult um, mode of proceeding. Um, I think the bigger issue is really how to proceed in these excessive force cases. And you have so many layers of scrutiny that oftentimes it's a little bit the bigger question is before you even get there, which is to say, if you can management, I think, and I agree with some of Larry's remarks here, needs to take a stronger hand and they're not, uh, the blame should not be shifted entirely onto unions. Management has a role to play here in trying and doing a better job of 
weeding out bad officers. You know, one study in Chicago shows that, you know, uh, 5% of officers are accused of over a third of the civilian complaints. So really it's cold comfort to address the issue once, you know, a citizen has been killed or there's been a real use of excessive force, injured someone. Um, really you need to get address the problem earlier in the pipeline. And that's where I think some of the excessive layers of uh, protections in the contracts are, are the issue. Uh, Larry James, again, a couple, couple observations. When we look at Ferguson, we go back to that time. Uh, and we, as a, as a part of the FOP, we knew that our voice was not going to be heard. So we invited the Obama Justice Department to come in and do an in-depth study because we knew the officer was going to be cleared. And that is exactly what happened in Ferguson. If, if you had decided that you were going to take this to a, a jury or, uh, you know, let me, let me change this because what I just thought of, in many jurisdictions now, uh, all police fatal shootings go to the grand jury. So in a sense, you have that review process, but I think it would be an abusive process to say automatically that you're going to take it to the jury uh, because it's, it's just impractical. The other thing I would point out is in Minneapolis, uh, when we look at that situation, my wife and a lot of my family members and community members asked the question, why did that officer seem so comfortable with his knee on that individual's neck? And the reason for that is that individual was a training officer and that is the technique that he had taught. That um, regulation had been on the books for Minneapolis forever. It had a citizen's review and the officer did not see anything wrong with the technique that he uses. Now I'm not justifying it. I thought it was a horrible example, but when you look at how you're gonna judge an officer and then you indict an officer and or you want to take an officer to a jury trial, you better be darn sure that the due process and the normal judiciary procedures are employed for everyone's sake. We've got three questions pending. Uh, I want to go to our next caller as soon as we can, but uh, let me ask, is there uh, either of our guests, this is Dean, by the way, um, it seems to me part of the problem is you get an immediate outcry from the public and, and maybe there's some misinformation or disinformation. Are there are there problems with transparency here? Is it possible to get immediate statements out um, that are meaningful, that, that can uh, allay some of the concerns that there's not going to be a review? I mean, it seems to me that the reviews are very routine um, and, and done properly, but maybe not quickly enough? Is that, is that an issue? Is there some way to get around this immediate conflagration to, to settle things this, down a bit? This is Larry James. Um, take the Atlanta situation, the shooting there. I think at the end of the day, that's going to be determined that the officer was justified in that shooting. Now, what the mayor decided to do is to bypass any due process procedures and transparency be damned. Uh, she fired the officer or had the officer fired on the spot. Uh, public officials, when you have that sort of hue and cry, has to make a decision. Are you going to take immediate action and take the uh, uh, trample on the rights of the one versus having your city burned down or damaged? And I don't have an answer for that. I, you know, when you sit in those chairs and you have to make those decisions, 
uh, it's a horrible place to be. I think we've momentarily lost Professor DeSalvo. Professor, do we have you back? Yes, I'm back. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if you heard the last exchange I had asked about transparency and means to to uh, reduce an immediate response, an immediate public outcry after an incident. If there's anything to be done there. I guess I'm sympathetic to Larry's position. I heard most of his statement. It's in barring a real intervention by mayors and other political act, uh, elected officials, um, which I generally think is unwise and probably prejudges the cases. It's very hard to get something immediate, that a real to have some kind of investigation of what has been done before some statement is made. And usually the conflagrations here are occurring within 24 hours. It seems to me that the, the transparency, I mean, there can be an assurance that an investigation will be done but whether that's going to really tame uh, the anger of a given community in the short term, that seems to me relatively unlikely. We've got three questions pending now, so let's check in with our next caller. It looks like we're headed to Texas. Yes, this is Ed Heimlich in Austin, Texas. Um, questions for um, Professor DeSalvo. Uh, Larry James mentioned the, the history on unions. They did bring a lot of people into the middle class, and the, reason was because in the competitive market, um, where you have employers uh, com com competing to offer their services at a lower wage than their lower price than their competitors, they will seek to hold wages down. So in the competitive market, you need unions. But we know on the head, unions in the private sector of our economy, they've been pretty much eradicated. Uh, particularly in states like Texas, where we have the right-to-work laws. The exception, though, is these public uh, sector unions. Now, they have a monopoly, so there is no competitive downward pressure on wages. So why do they need a union other than to corrupt our political process by using their unions to get the um, uh, people elected, including judges, who will let them uh, violate the law. Uh, Professor DeSilvo, can you answer why, we, why would a, a public entity where they have a monopoly on providing service need a union? Well, I guess uh, this is Dan DeSalvo from uh, City College. Um, Generally speaking, um, I'm sympathetic to your criticism. I think that in many cases, you know, we do, there is evidence that police in jurisdictions where there is collective bargaining do earn more in uh, pay and benefits than in jurisdictions where there's not. I think in the current environment, if uh, the reform proposals, for example, that are on the table in Connecticut, that would reduce uh, the amount of job protections or eliminate uh, collective bargaining over the terms and conditions of employment, meaning over disciplinary procedures, and make police officers' jobs less protected, you might have to do something more on the pay side. Um, that's going to be fairly costly. Um, who's going to want to take the job of being a police officer if you don't have fairly extensive job protections. There's, there's some justification for that. So it, in my view, I think that looking ahead at the reform proposals, 
you perhaps we want to be pushing in a direction of a of a more professionalized police uh, force that receives potentially higher pay or that restructures compensation away from very heavy uh, pension and healthcare benefits and retirement and more into pay at the front end. In some ways, I could see police as feeling very embattled in the current moment, and that's going to be a problem for re- recruiting talented and serious officers. So that's, I think, a big issue is if we're going to be constraining collective bargaining, um, which is, the, I think there's strong reasons to think that that needs to be done, um, other reforms are going to need to come into place along with that. Um, I'd be curious as to Larry's perspective on this as well. Well, I'm I'm smiling because when you talk about public sector unions, the only one that really yields a lot of power on the purse string are probably your teachers. If you want to look at what's in our political fund, our PAC, um, uh, you're you're going to be sadly uh, disappointed because that influence by the way of money, I mean, corporate America uh, is the entity that really influences politicians. Before we got on the call today, uh, a, a couple minutes ago, I get a, 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 a alerts that the Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives uh, had been indicted along with a lot of the lobbyists who were representing the utility companies that had some initiatives on the uh, thing. So I, I don't think that's fair at all, that that public unions somehow corrupt locally, statewide, or nationally. I think that is the farthest thing from the truth. When you want to talk about the influence of judges, if you look want to look at the employer-employee situation, at our U.S. Supreme Court in the last, say, 15 years, if you were to look at the cases of employment pending, you would find 90% plus were decided in the employer's favor. I'll stop there. Let's check in with our next caller. <clears throat> Hi, this is Bob Fitzpatrick in D.C. <clears throat> I have two questions. I do not remember the name of the officer in Minnesota who put the knee on Mr. Floyd, but apparently had a long documented history of, quote, wrongdoing and somehow, uh, I guess, had sufficient job protections under the collective bargaining agreement that he survived to as many have said, execute Mr. Floyd. So I'd be interested in what suggestions both of you have in this really toxic environment where under the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement, one could modify protections to some middle ground where guys like him don't continue to survive charges of wrongdoing. And then secondly, and I think it's kind of part and parcel of that, what suggestions do you gentlemen have in terms of amendments to a collective bargaining agreement that might start to change the culture of what is called the thin blue line, that is, 
cops won't think on other cops. And, you know, we can talk about changing cultures and bringing external people to give speeches and show them videos and all that stuff we did with sex harassment. But at the end of the day, I wonder if it's the collective bargaining agreements that can have the real power to bring about change. This is Larry James. I think the thing you have to keep in mind, um, this conversation is primarily focused on large city uh, police department. The majority of our police officers who work around the uh, country work in much smaller uh, departments. They're substantially underpaid. Many of them are working second jobs. So let's understand that we're talking about big city departments uh, for the sake of this. And, and, and we're also talking about states that have collective bargaining and police officers' bills of rights. I think the one thing that we probably could agree on is when we're talking about the officer in Minnesota, and you'd have to look at the 17 complaints to see what type of complaints they were, whether they were abuse, uh, physical abuse, excessive force, or rudeness, you know, what's the nature of those? But what we're talking about in the labor contract, what you run into is a record retention policy and how an officer's complaints um, that are in writing are going to be destroyed or removed from his or her personnel file. So that is a critical issue, and that is one of those issues that unions many times negotiates with management. Uh, so management has to take a firm stance to say that at least those complaints that would relate to excessive use of force are not going to be eliminated. So what I say to communities, take a look at what the record retention policy looks like. Is it one that irrespective of the nature of the complaint that in a year or two years or six months, whatever that time period is gonna be removed versus excessive force and then you deal with progressive discipline. During the time I was safety director, you know, I wanted to know those things. And I think if management is gonna be consistent, fair, what you'll get from the union, they will tell you, director with a nod and a wink, this guy is on his own. We're not gonna come to bat for him as hard as we are a good officer that deserves a second uh, chance. You have those outlier situations and maybe Minneapolis is one. What we don't know is the totality of those complaints, the length of time those complaints persisted, and I think we have to look at that to be objective and fair. When we look at police officers and we look at the number of encounters they have with the public, you, you, you know, in a million, let's assume there's a million encounters and you're in a hotbed area where it's crime infested and it's not the easiest um, area to patrol and that officer is making X number of arrests a year. You can imagine that the complaints are gonna go up. You can also imagine that the increased probability that something's gonna go wrong. And so when you're looking at those type of statistics, you ask yourself, if you're talking about 2% or 200 officers out of a million, 
in a two-year period of time that you're going to have these flashpoints, how are we going to view the overall performance of the police officers? So that's what I would challenge you and push back on to ask those more in-depth questions and study the problems a little bit harder. Uh, Professor DeSalvo, anything on this? And, and, and this is Dean, by the way. Let me add, it seems that prospectively, that is going forward, the, the meaningfulness of a complaint might change because right now in this heightened, uh, this era of heightened scrutiny, it, it seems to me that we're more likely to get complaints than ever. Um, but Professor DeSalvo. Yeah, I have thoughts on this. An excellent question. Um, in, in some ways, I, I agree with Larry. I might go a little bit further. I think in some jurisdictions, even how complaints can be brought, whether you can allow anonymous civilian complaints or not. Some people are afraid to come forward if they don't. In some jurisdictions, there are no anonymous complaints. You have to sign an affidavit, which then makes your name public. So how complaints could be brought. I think greater transparency here is not necessarily opening up an officer's personnel file to the public, but to management so that they can make the kind of discretionary choices that need to be made and look at the totality of an officer's record over an extended period and say that we're getting too many complaints um, um, from this given officer. Um, we need to rethink about who this officer is partnered with when he or she is you know, on patrol. And in that respect, I think really main, the maintenance of records and not destroying them. And so in that sense, I would go maybe a little further than Larry and say not just the excessive force complaints should be kept and everything else can be shredded, but I think the totality of the officer's performance over time needs to look to be looked at, and that gives management an extra tool to see who they have. And of course, as management changes, they can then have a historical record. And I think if we get out from the details of the bargaining uh, agreements about how complaints can be lodged and then whether the records should be kept is really to think about what's the, the police force that we want going forward. I think it may perhaps a helpful analogy to think about is the U.S. Army after uh, the Vietnam War when we switched to an all-volunteer force. And in some sense, there was a, a, a trade-off that was, a, you know, has worked out well, I think, for the United States, which has been really demand high performance, but not to offer as nearly as many job protections um, and really have really high standards, um, but also compensate people well. And that might be a model that people wanted, would want to study in this context, which is to demand in a sense, higher performance, but to compensate people better and, in a sense, try to improve the overall human capital of police departments going forward. And perhaps that's the sort of longer-term push um, in a direction that might be helpful. Yeah, this is Larry James again. I think the other thing when we talk about training and meaningful training, if we look at the departments, almost universally speaking, that the first thing to go in, in the budget is training and meaningful training that's going to have the officers uh, better equipped to deal with certain situations. And you just saw this as we dealt with all the riots and whether those officers were equipped uh, and trained to really respond to that sort of, of, of monitoring, if you will, without uh, retaliating 
or, 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 or reaching out. One of the issues I had when I was safety director, we had an officer who would say hello and he would use mace on the individuals and I said, you know, what's going on here? And they said, used to, to the professor's point, the use of mace was not characterized as a use of force. I said, well, then we will start characterizing it as a use of force. And if you have this many complaints within this period of time, then you need to go back in the retraining. But again, I think as you look at a police department and understand it, how it works, how it functions, how discipline works, how training works, it all matters. And those are the things that are gonna make a difference. I'll stop there. Uh, we've got three questions pending, so the, the line grows, but we're working through them. Uh, thank you, Dean. Uh, it's Don Hudler in Philadelphia. Um, Clark Neely, who's currently at the Cato Institute, has been advocating for some years that uh, it might be a good idea for police officers to carry private liability insurance, with the idea being that the private sector knows how to spread risks and allocate costs. And furthermore, he thinks that just as in many other professions, that if police officers had to carry insurance, the worst offenders, the minority among any particular force would quickly be identified and charge higher rates. And uh, if they didn't reform their act actions, then they would eventually become uninsurable and therefore unemployable. I think as uh, outsiders to law enforcement, that seems like a really interesting uh, uh, system and a potential reform. I'm curious what both Professor DeSalvo and Mr. James thinks about that. I'll defer to you first, Professor. Um, well, thank you, Larry. Uh, it's Dan DeSalvo uh, from City College. I think it's an excellent question, and it's a provocative suggestion, an interesting way to introduce a market mechanism into policing. I would say I have a, a slight bit of skepticism, and this goes back to something that Larry uh, touched on earlier, which is when it comes, you know, sometimes the cases for police officers when they have more contacts with civilians over a long time in big cities and tough neighborhoods, it can also be that, you know, some of the complaints for certain things are because the officer is a truly, really effective officer who gets in there and does their job and breaks up fights and deals with difficult violent situations back in their in their squad car. So I wonder, you know, again, this would all hinge on what the underlying data that is going to be used um, by the private insurers to deal with this policy and how that's going to to ratchet up and whether you would end up with a situation that might target some fairly effective officers. That would be my concern with that policy model. Larry James, so if you look at uh, our profession and legal malpractice, and if you've had a claim in your firm, because I also represent a lot of lawyers in various disciplinary cases, and you watch the skyrocketing cost of insurance with one incident, it will immediately eliminate the market for police officers. We currently have in some jurisdictions and townships and consortiums where they go out and they have to go to market because their tax base will not afford them the ability to defend lawsuits going forward. And once you have one claim in one department, it isn't officer specific because you, you're probably gonna try to group it uh, if you try that at all, uh, that's just impractical and would be impossible and would require the officers to make a ton of money and that taxpayers and the public is not prepared to do. 
And I would just say, look at what malpractice insurances cost, both in the medical profession and in the legal profession as a mirror. I guess I would add one more point here, which is not exactly directly related to the question, but I think is a relevant and important one in the current uh, context, which is what you don't want to create are too many incentives for officers not to be proactive. That is the good officers who can really go out and protect and, and serve communities. The problem is, is as we can see from uh, current realities in Baltimore and many other cities in the United States is when police officers withdraw and pull back, you know, crime can go up and that, that can hurt a lot of communities. So in some cases, it's a delicate balance. That is, we don't want to reduce too many protections for officers. So they feel like they can't take sufficient risk on the job. Um, and that's going to be the delicate balance. And this, this insurance proposal that you mentioned sort of speaks to that same idea. Uh, this is Larry. Go ahead. Yeah, Larry. I- I would also say this when you're looking at what the professor said is for officers to go out and do their job. And the question is, is how the administration will facilitate that. During the tenure as safety director, um, we had an issue in predominantly black community where I wanted the officers to go out and saturate the community to give uh, the community back to the seniors and the children because they just couldn't go out and enjoy their neighborhood. And I went to our command staff and I said, look, folks, uh, I would like to do this. And they said, director, that's a bad idea. We're not welcome. We're not like, and it's just going to create friction and there are going to be a ton of complaints. I just don't want it. So I asked them, I said, what would it take? They said, "We we have to be invited in. So I went to the Nation of Islam, the leadership, uh, Brother Donnell Mohammed, whom I'd known a number of years, and I said to him, I said, uh, uh, Brother Donnell, I need you to hold a press conference. I need you to invite the police in. I need you to support the police. And that's exactly what we did, and we saturated it. So I think that these issues of makeshift of, of solutions, you know, whether it's private insurance, uh, or civilian review boards, which we have over 150 around the country. Minneapolis has one. They had a budget of a million dollars, and none of those have been effective. I would I would challenge uh, and say that the primary failure in law enforcement has been management. Well, this is Dean. I have a question related to that, and we've talked about some creative ideas here. And then I've heard a couple times about police officers, line officers, using methods and processes that had been endorsed by management or by the, the I don't know if they're endorsed by the union or not, but uh, is, it a, is it a defense for a line officer if he's following uh, protocol, if he's following procedure like the use of mace as, as a non-use uh, of force or like a neck on the knee? How much of a defense is that? How much of a defense should it be if somebody's operating within a regime that has some out, outmoded or outdated standards? Uh, this is Larry James. Absolutely. So the issue in the defense is always I was trained with this technique, I followed it. No one told me it was wrong. No one told me it was incorrect. And there the liability shifts to the government entity to, whose policy may have been to train that. And then you're gonna bring in your expert witnesses to say, is that the best practice 
or is that the best standard? Uh, so always when you see a lot of these cases where, like in Baltimore, where these individuals were indicted and went to trial and all of them got exonerated, they were not guilty, please. And we see those more often than not, and you ask yourself, why is that? So the officer is going to take the stand, and they're going to take, bring in the chain of command on cross, and they're going to ask, was this the policy? Was it in place? Did you train to this policy? And did the officers comply with that? So absolutely. I'm not saying it's right, but in Minneapolis, that situation is going to be on trial then management is going to have to be the one that should be on trial. And the question is, do you indict management or higher up? And as a result of that, like you would do in a corporate world, and you retain, if you retain a bad employee, then that liability vests uh, or spills over into the uh, corporate entity. Professor DeSalvo? I guess. Yeah, my my thought here is, uh, you know, a little bit broader gauged, and that is that, you know, in some ways, I think the bigger concern here, when you know, we look at the, all of the police union contracts and all the different levels of appeals and all of the investigatory processes, is that in some sense, the idea of due process has become distorted by unionization and collective bargaining, and, you know, due process... Again, I'm not an attorney. I'm a Ph.D. professor, so all of the lawyers can perhaps take me apart on this. But in my humble understanding, it was always an idea that was to protect citizens against abuses of power by the state, not necessarily to protect police when they abuse their power. And in that sense, due process has taken on this uh, sort of magical word and this extensive set of procedures that um, make really action so slow and difficult in in that sense and really ties management's hands in significant ways. So while I would like in some sense to give uh, management a freer hand, they need to be able to take to take action, not only at the point when something really tragic and terrible has happened, as we saw in, let's say, the Minneapolis case, the, the police chief did the right thing, he fired the officers right away, but that sort of cold comfort coming at the end of, a, uh, of something terrible happening. This is Larry again. I think the problem you have is equal accountability. If you are a first year officer, as one of those officers in Minneapolis had been on the job for four days. He's on site, he's got a superior officer who is part of the training academy, and that officer asked his superior, uh, maybe you should let him sit up, maybe you should do this. He basically tells him to shut up. Now, that officer who had been on the force for four days who understand that is a proper technique, he may have disagreed with it and voiced his concern. He is fired and he is indicted. I'll stop there. One quick factual question for me and then we'll go on to two remaining questions in our audience. Do we know what percentage of law enforcement officers are operating under a union or under a collective bargaining agreement? Um, it's. Uh, this is Dan DeSalvo from from City College. It's it's hard to know ex the exact numbers in the police context. I can give you uh, some of those if you just 
bear with me for one second, partly because police. So according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, about 57% of the nation's 712,000 police officers are covered by collective bargaining contracts. And about 55% of police officers are union members. Now, that's the Bureau of Labor Statistics data. If you actually look at what the numbers of union members reported by organized labor, AFL-CIO, SEIU, uh, Fraternal Order of Police, you actually end up, oddly enough, with more union members than there are police officers in the country. Um, so it's a little bit hard to get a handle on the data. The reason is that individual officers and locals can uh, affiliate with multiple larger federations, which is not possible in the private sector union context and most other public sector unions don't do that. The other sort of factual point that probably be worth stating is that police only enjoy collective bargaining rights in 41 states. So Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia prohibit collective bargaining for all public employees. And then Alabama, Colorado, Mississippi, and Wyoming don't have statutes either to encourage or oppose police unions. Larry James, anything on this or should we move on? Oh, please move on. Yep. Two questions pending. We've got almost 10 minutes left. I think we can get both of these in. Uh, Hi, uh, my name is Robert Ephraimson. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And pardon me, I, I came on a little late, but I, my coming into this conversation, I was sort of re- reading Reason magazine and other places, I think Cato Institute as well, and thinking that, you know, we really do need to rein in the unions. And then it was mentioned in one of the earlier questions, the situation in Atlanta where, uh, where apparently there are no unions and the officer was fired uh, almost immediately for conduct that uh, a lot of people think will probably be proven to be unjustifiable. And to me, that, that that was a problem, not just for that officer, but for the whole notion of, of reform by getting rid of or by restraining union power, because the, the argument the unions have is, look, you know, we you, the, the police need us to protect them from precisely, precisely that sort of political interference with their jobs, where there's a howling mob and, and, and then the, the, the local politicians just throw them, throw the police officers under the bus. So I, I saw that as as kind of concerning, and I, I don't. I, I don't. I guess I, that's my question. I don't have an answer to it. I was wondering whether you saw the the same the same tension at play there. Thank you. Uh, well, this is Dan very. Oh, go ahead. Harry, go ahead. Um, I you know the the question when you look across the United States and the number of uh, labor agreements. Where we see the major confrontation is in the major uh, urban areas, New York, LA, Chicago, Atlanta, uh, Columbus, you know, so, so forth. I think unions, I think unions contracts, I think arbitration has been a good tool. I think overall there has not been an abuse to that. Where the lines get blurred is when um, government entities are lacking money and they decide that their trade-off is some of management's rights, you know, whether that's records retention, whether that's the number of officers that are going to be assigned. And so I would urge everyone to, to create this divide to look at those issues where management has given up those rights. And again, we're not talking about firing, hiring, discipline, termination, promotion, or training. The unions have no say-so in those areas. So I'll stop there. Professor Desai. 
Gustavo? Yeah, I would just say that, you know, the caller's question is an excellent one, and certainly there's an inherent trade-off here in you can increase union strength and increase the number of job protections and you could that are in, in, in involved in any contract. Now, the, the, the trick is that um, those are going to protect good officers in bad, um, and they may end up protecting officers when they really need it. And that's, you know, certainly the justification and the argument for allowing CB and unionization in the public safety sector. The trouble is when all of these provisions become really a drain and make it impossible for management to feel like it can uh, weed out poor performing officers without having to go through an extensive, really extensive and laborious process, even if you think about supervisors, given the grievance procedures enshrined in so many contracts, many uh, superior officers won't take any adverse personnel action against the junior uh, officer that they're supervising because they can be nearly certain that a grievance will be fired. They'll have to deal with tons of paperwork and it just becomes a huge hassle. So in that sense, it becomes has a chilling effect. And I think that's that's the sort of thing that I think leads to this kind of organizational sclerosis. Uh, Larry James again. I would say to you, having sat in 360 on police operations, I have never seen um, a situation in my history where that has been true, that officers are not written up. Because uh, I'll tell you, the number of cases that reached my desk of serious infractions were plenty. I would say to you, out of every hundred uh, cases, I probably sustain 85% of them. And I think if you look at and you dig deeply, you will find, as I said earlier, that few of these cases go to arbitration because if you're a labor lawyer and you're representing these folks, you don't want to create bad precedent. And so you walk away and you say, we're not going to take that grievance forward. I'll stop there. Let's see if we can get to this final caller. Go right ahead, caller. Yeah, this is that again in Texas. My question concerns uh, is for both. It concerns privatization of of police uh, functions. Uh, can you hear me all? Yes. Yes. Uh, much of what the police do uh, could be done by private services and, and currently is by, by those that contract with guard or patrol services. And I think uh, that it's neighborhoods and maybe even entire cities privatized uh, 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 at least some of their functions, that uh, that can, would cure a lot of problems. Uh, uh, but the union contracts, uh, like they write in there that, uh, that they get a law passed that says that there has to be a, a, a police officer making 80000 well, actually with benefits, $100,000 a year, uh, sitting uh, over at any any place there's uh, some road construction going on, and, and they just sit there all day. Uh, that that could easily be uh, uh, contracted out to a private entity, a privately owned entity, uh, for a fraction of the cost. Uh, any comments on that? Or that's uh, this is, yeah, this is Larry James. The only area you're going to see that uh, happen is in your more affluent neighborhoods. Uh, where your problems are much fewer, your skill sets, your training uh, uh, is, you're not going to need as much of it. 
realistically, that j- that's not going to happen. I'll stop. Hi, Dan Salvo, City College. I, I, I agree uh, mm-hmm. with Larry on the practical uh, unlikelihood of that occurring. And I guess I, for my own part, I also disagree with it in principle insofar as police officers are given the authority to use force on behalf of the state. Uh, I think that's a role better left in the hands of somebody who is a, a public employee. I think one way that the, the caller's question might go in the current debate is police are asked to do an enormous amount of things in a lot of our big cities today. You know, I'm from New York. They're dealing with a lot of the mental health issues and homelessness policies. It may be that, you know, some of these things need to be taken off the plate of the police um, and given to um and given to other groups that um, need to develop and, and be able to deal with some of those issues and not just put every problem back in, onto the police. And this is Larry James. Uh, ditto on that because that's what refunding or defunding the police should be about, a reallocation of resources. As I talked earlier about school resource officers, if you want individuals with certain skill set, uh, as opposed to discipline enforcement, you will go down that path. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, thank you. This is Dean Reuter. I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it right there. My thanks to uh, Larry James and Professor Daniel DeSalvo. Uh, we certainly appreciate your time and your insights here. My thanks also to the audience for dialing in and for your thoughtful questions. A reminder to check your website, uh, check our website, check your emails uh, for notices of upcoming Teleform conference calls. But until that next call. We are adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.